When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are now listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. So we're doing something a little different this episode. I'm going to save all my commentary and recaps for next week because this week we have a really special treat. One of my very dear friends is joining us this episode. Her latest book is at the top of the New York Times bestsellers list. Maybe you've heard of her. Her name is Tarana Burke. She is the founder and activist behind the Me Too movement, one of the largest cultural events in American history. She has many, many accolades at this point, including 2017 Time Person of the Year. And she recently co-wrote her first book with Dr. Brene Brown. It's called You Are Your Best Thing vulnerability, shame, resilience, and the black experience. It is an anthology, a collection of essays from many writers, some very, very well-known, some names you may have never heard before, but each of the essays hit it out of the park. When I'd interviewed Tarana, I'd only read maybe like four of them. I'm almost done with the book now, and I have I have screamed, I have cried, I have wanted to throw this book across the room. It made me mad that I hadn't formed a book club, even though I've been talking about doing it for like ever. And I was like, this book should have been a book club pick. It's so good. And it brings up so much. So I'm super glad that Tarana was able to join us today and talk about her new book. I'm giving her the whole episode because we're unpacking shame and self-work and resilience and Black women's quote and unquote strength and, and muling and, and more and much, much more. Those are topics that are not quickly discussed. So I wanted to give them and Tarana the space to get into that. So without further ado, please welcome my dear friend, Tarana Burke, to Ratchet and Respectable. I usually just refer to you as like T or, or girl or whatever, but Tarana Burke. <laughs> Tarana Burke. <laughs> many accolades. Like if I sit here and name them all. <laughs> We'd be here for a while, but I'm very, very happy to have you on Ratchet and Respectable. I have been a a friend first and foremost and a fan for like the last five years or so because, you know, life got crazy. Lord, have mercy. But I was thinking today about how we met and I realized that we met 10 years ago next month. When your book came out. When my book came out and when A Bell in Brooklyn came out in 2011, you or someone on your team sent sent me an email and wanted me to launch a book festival that you were doing in Philly. Mm-hmm. And I was, one, the book hadn't been out yet. We decided to like release the copies early just for this event. And I was like, wait, like you want to throw a whole party to launch your book festival for like a, a new author that like, like I ain't sold the book yet. And you want to like have a whole party for me? I said, yes. Um, but the whole time I was there, I was like, this is crazy. And being with you in Philly and having that big, fest, that big um, event, like that was the launch of my book. I think when you took me to the radio station, I can't remember the guy's name. He's really gorgeous. Had a really oh, gorgeous Solomon voice. Jones. Dark skinned bald headed guy? No, no, no. This is a light skinned dude. Light skinned dude. Oh, 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 that's my man. What's his name? Oh, it, I'll think of it in a second. But I think that was the first radio interview that I'd done for like a Bell in oh, Brooklyn. It might have been the first time I did radio. Um, and I was just like, oh, you had me on the panel with Deneen Miller, Miller yeah, yeah, who is yeah. one of my really, really good friends now. She's like a big sister to me. And like, mm-hmm. I was just, I was like overwhelmed and I was like, oh my God, like this woman's just 
gone all out and above for me. And we stayed friends and like, you know, all the joys and pains and ups and downs and meandering roads that life takes. And here we are. Here we are. That that's it's so funny you thought you brought that up because the reason why that happened is because I was searching for new voices. You know, we it was the um book festival is the biggest black book festival on the East Coast. The oldest rather I should say. Um um celebration of black arts in Philadelphia. And I used to run that when I was managing director at Art Sanctuary and we were trying to remix it a little bit and I used to follow your blog. And, you know, you know, randomly on social media and whatever. So when I saw you had the book, I was like, yeah. And I think Helena Andrews' book came out either mm-hmm. right around that time. Bitches the New Black came yeah, out Bitches the year before. Yeah, the New Black came out. Aaliyah had a book out. You know, it's Aaliyah King. So I was like, we need some fresh voices in here. And yeah, so it was, it was and you know, Deneen is, all, is the, the OG, but always fresh. Always fresh. <laughs> So that was that was a really great experience, and it did it did launch a lot of friendships too. I met so many people, and I'm glad because it gave me also an entry, a peek into the publishing industry and like what that whole world is like. And ten years later, here you are. Here I am with your first book. Yeah, first of many. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But this is okay. your first book. You are the best thing. It's it's you and um, Dr. Brene Brown. I started reading this thing. The first essay, tears rolling down my face. It's, it's, it's so much. But this is a book about addressing vulnerability and shame and resilience to that. There's so much humanity. There's some things that are about Blackness. There's some things that are just about people. There's some things that ain't got nothing to do with me, but it hits me nonetheless. So talk to me first about uh, where the idea from this book came from. I guess I have been thinking about something like this for a long time. But, you know, so many different projects, like uh, as my girlfriend Yaba likes to say it. It's just the queen of bright ideas. There's all these different ideas that come up and you're like, one day. But last summer, I was particularly disturbed by a few things. I was disturbed by, obviously, after George Floyd was murdered, Breonna Taylor was murdered. Um, there was the uprisings were happening and I was glad to see that happen. But what what else happened, and this probably happened to you too, is myself and other Black folks who have you know large followings and visibility, we got to influx of white people following us Mm -hmm. and an influx of white people being like, how can I be a better ally? How can I be anti-racist? I just want to do something. I want to do more. And, and, and then I just saw the performances happening and the schools opening up, right? It was like, oh, okay. Let me teach you how to be anti-racist. Oh, okay. And it was more labor from black people who should have had a moment to take a beat and to breathe and say, this hurts. Yeah. This is, this is, I'm traumatized by this. I'm saddened by this. I'm angered by this, right? And so there was just very little space on social media and mainstream media where people were interrogating how Black people were sitting with all this this reckoning that people were, you know, claiming all over the place. It's a racial reckoning. What does that mean for us? So there was, there was that. And I, I often turn to Brene's work, you know, I've, followed her for years. I've loved her work for years. And we became friends a few years ago, fast friends. Like I met her and it had nothing to do with the work. It was like, oh, she is just like a crazy lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, What she and I had become for each other was a place to not have to delve into the work. So we would get on the phone and cackle about wallpaper. Like we have similar tastes and design and things like that. So we wouldn't have to like bring our frustrations to the relationship. To, you know, to the friendship. But I realized I had been gushing and gushing and gushing about how much her work helped me and how much I loved it. And I hadn't talked to her ever about some of the blind spots that I saw. You know, I had never said to her, I love your work, but I sometimes have to contort myself as a Black woman to see, to find myself in it. Because it's like, how do you say that to your friend? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you critique a person about their their work, whether they're your friend or not? It's, it's hard. But I I decided to have that conversation with her last summer in the midst of this um, because I felt like we need we needed more honest conversations than we did to be setting up shop to teach people how to be anti-racist and things like that. So we had that conversation and she was like, you know what? I have heard that before. That's not news to me. I have, you know, I'm I'm trying to remedy it. And she re-released, it's like the 10th anniversary of Gifts of Imperfection, one of her big hit books. 
Um, and she, she addressed it in there, but I was like, would you be interested in doing something with me? Like a project that takes your research and your expertise and marries it to the black experience. And she was like, hell yeah. <laughs> Some folks are going to hear about a, a black woman, you, I mean, you have, you know, mm-hmm. the clout and credibility and some people are going to be like, so you chose to work with a white lady to do this? Yeah. And I, I've, I've been asked that question more than one time. The thing about it is that she is white indeed. And, and I don't have a history of like rolling with white women, right? I don't even have a bunch of, Brene is one of a handful of white women who I call friends now, which is an, even that is new. But, but she is, I chose to do this with her because if we're going to talk about shame, vulnerability, and shame resilience, she literally wrote the book on that. Mm-hmm. You know, she is here as an expert. And I would never engage a white person to write about the Black experience. She's not doing that. We are co editors of the book. I have an essay in the book, but it is Black people talking about Black experiences. And she is just there to ground it in the research that she's done, which is based on a a diversity of people, right? That's why the work resonates with so many people because her research is actually based on a diversity of people. But when she writes her stories, she tells it from her own personal experience, right? So then she's like, then you become a white woman from Texas talking about shame and vulnerability and a black woman from the Bronx can't relate to that. Yeah, I, I chose to do it with a white woman, but I, this is not a white woman telling black people how they feel, how they should feel, what their lives are like, or what their experience is like. This is a white woman who one can ground the work in her in her, you know, her research, but two can also speak to white people. I don't want to be in a position to have to explain anything to white people if I don't choose to. And that's some, that's a role that she can take on because as soon as you put out a book about race, it just becomes, oh my God, this is the book that's going to teach me and change my life. And that's, that's not, that's not the audience. I've said this over and over again. Our primary audience is black people first and foremost. I think that other people will benefit from this book. I think they should benefit from this book. But for me, this is an offering to us first. This is a place for us to see our humanity, you know, um, personified to see our to see ourselves in writing on a page to see somebody crack that that little piece of themselves open that we haven't figured out how to do yet it's for us to say you know i'm dealing with white supremacy and it makes me angry but it also makes me sad and it makes me scared you know it's 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 for us so yeah that's the best i can give folks like you know if you know me you know my history i'm the blackest person you, know. <laughs> you are <laughs> <laughs> I, I can co-sign that. You know that I bleed red, black, and green. So if I'm if I'm if I'm putting out a project with a white woman, first of all, you know she's thorough, and secondly, it's definitely not to insert a white voice in it just arbitrarily. Yeah, which I appreciate it. There's a Q and A. I mean, you know this, but for the people who are listening, there's a Q and A that starts off the book, and it gets into the heart of you know why this choice and why she was the right woman for it. And she also was like, and just so you know, I'm not making any proceeds off this book. They're all going to like help emerging black mm-hmm. writers tell their stories. And I was like, well, all right now. It's not just, you know, lip service. You put money where your mouth is. That that kind of, <laughs> I'm going to tell you, that kind of floored me. Because you know me, I was like, we're not talking about all the coins, right? We just, oh, okay. I was just. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, so just your coins. <laughs> <laughs> but she, she went above and beyond. Because you know how these contracts work. When you have contributors the the publisher is not obligated to pay the contributors. This, you right. know. So the, the the pain of the contributors came out of our advances. She one, she wanted to make sure that every contributor was paid the same. So no matter if you're Jason Reynolds or you are Kaya Nadira, right? Net first time being published, they all got paid the same. Also, I I feel like I've heard from some of the professional writers in there all of them got paid more than they usually get paid for, for things like this, right? You get like $2,500, something like that. We gave them a, a substantial, substantially higher amount for contributing. And that entire amount came from her advance, the 100%. I love it. I love it. So, you know, I was like, you put your money where your mouth is. That's how you know what's real or not. <laughs> when the rubber meets the road and people start getting funny with their money, but no, she's been really thorough, and I and I just appreciate that. I appreciate that on behalf of Black writers, Black creators, Black authors. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> How'd you choose who was included in the book or which essays? That was so hard. 
that probably was the hardest part. I mean, you know, as you know, I've all, <laughs> including yourself, I have so many writer friends. And so I started, We what we decided to do first was kind of make, both of us made lists. And <laughs> both of us came back with a crazy number of people, <laughs> a crazy number of people. We was like, okay, so this can't be like volumes. We decided to go by topics. Like I want, we want to write about parenting. We want to write about aging. We want to write about, you know, like those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And started thinking about who we knew that could cover those. So Brene brought probably, I think, nine of the 19. And I think I brought in 10, something like that. It's it's, it's almost even. And every day I think of another person <laughs> like, oh, I wish I had you in here. Like we could, we could do this book four more times. You could. I would read it four more times, just to be clear. <laughs> no, but I, I started reading and literally Jason Reynolds' essay, um, Between mm. Us, A Reckoning with My Mother, took me clean out. Yes, indeed. In his specific essay, he's talking about heading down south with his mother. And I know this is a book about shame. I know this is a book about vulnerability. I know it's a book about Blackness and racism, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm waiting for the narrative of him driving down south or his mother driving him down south as a kid. And I'm waiting for the inevitable story about the white racist at the gas station uh or the hotel or something to pop out in the story. And I won't give away the thing that he did, but he talks about this monumental and I don't want to use the word crazy because uh, a couple (laughs) essays later talks about crazy, but he does this thing in regards to his mom. And then he explains it as, it was so important to me because I'd never seen a black writer and because of, of racism, systemic or, or otherwise, that he had not seen this thing that he wanted to be. He like he makes this crazy choice. And it's just like that's the thing about it that I love. And I'm not I mean, it's, it's obviously it's my book. But the thing that I love is that it's not just your typical stories. It is no. the insidious way that shame as a tool of white supremacy permeates our lives. Yeah. Right. It gets into the crevices of our lives and we so, so much that we don't even recognize it after a while. Yeah. You know, and his was, you know, Jason is a writer's writer, like he has say, like Imani, they, they just, they sit down and they just like, oh, here you go. I'm like, yeah, you know, let me crack open my life so you can crack open yours. <laughs> and now we're both just sitting here a whole mess and wanting to go write and tell our stories. Yes. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was quite a process. It was quite a process. You know, I don't consider myself an expert by any stretch. And I knew what I wanted to, as an editor, I knew what I wanted to bring out. And so there was some folks I had to go back to and be like, I know you, this is dope, but I know you. So I need you to, I need you to come for real. I need you to dig a little bit more. That was really difficult, particularly for some of my friends, some of my guy friends. I had to be like, I mean, this is nice. <laughs> but I need more. But remember that conversation we had that one time? Yeah, let's go there. And they let's were like, for real? <laughs> like, yeah. like in print for all these people? Right, right, right. Like, why not? Come on. <laughs> like, it's a story about vulnerability. We must get to the heart yeah. of the matter. I will tell you that, that Tanya Denise Fields, Ooh. do you mind if I, I, I read a piece of it no, to the audience? Please. I'm flipping through because I got the book right in front of me. I was reading. And was afraid I was going to be like late for this interview because I was like just engrossed. <laughs> but she wrote, and this is literally like the the second paragraph. Like she she started off with this. Um, I have felt ashamed of being dark, of having a broad nose, of my big lips, of my prematurely developed body, and later of my fat body with its rolls, saggy titties, hanging belly, and stretch marks. I have felt deep shame for not going to a better school, for not getting a good traditional job, for my struggles, for my literal hunger, for having six babies with four men who abandoned us. Sometimes I was ashamed of being the one who stayed. Mm. Sis just just opened up and laid it all on the table. And I was like, okay, so I've been shamed about this, Mm -hmm. about this, Mm -hmm. about this, about this. Oh, shit. I was ashamed of being the one who stayed. I was like, that ain't my story. Just laid bare in like seven words. Like, oh, Lord. That's so interesting you pulled out that line because that line sat me on my ass. Yeah. Ooh, and she said I was ashamed of being the one that stayed. I'm like, oh, stop acting like you know me. (laughs) But see, that's the thing, Demetria. Where do we... These are the conversations we have via text and group chats. This is the conversations we have over wine when we spend hours at brunch, you know, like... But but we don't get to have this as a family. We don't get to have these collective conversations. And when the next new book comes out about such and such something blackness, I just feel like they're always talking to white people. 
And that's fine, but also it's not. <laughs> it's like, make your sales, you know? make your sales money. But at, at the end of the day, like black yeah. folks need something that speaks to black folks. And I'll be very honest, when, when I was watching interviews, um, I watched your interview with, uh, with Gail and then also with Trevor Noah. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because I've been knowing you a long time and I know like the whole backstory of mm-hmm. how so much of, um, of me or not how me too, because you've been doing that for like over a decade, but how mm-hmm. like it took off in, in the national, international space. Um, and then to hear Trevor Noah be like, it was good to talk to you again. I was like, look at my girl. Look at my girl. Just all like buddies and pals with Trevor. And I was like, look at my girl. I just got teary and whatnot. Oh, man. It's crazy. You know how crazy it is. Literally from literal day one. You know Literally. I, I remember like the, the group. The day. <laughs> like, yes. We'll talk about that another time because I know you're going to tell that story in your next book. Which the cover is beautiful. We'll talk about that too. We'll talk about that too. When I when I saw the interview and you were talking about like first and foremost, like this is a book about black humanity for black folks. I was like, do do black people mm-hmm. not know black folks? Like if, if nothing else black people know, we know black folks. Kind, kind of, of though, right? Kind of. Sort of. The thing that I that I that I realized, I mean, I love black folks. I've worked in service of black folks and I try to know as much as I can. But my my for instance, my daughter is in this book and not using their last name, you know, trying to be whatever. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But but when I read their essay, which I read last, I, I had to separate myself from it. So I didn't mommy it to death and like judge it and, you know, insert myself. It made me feel like I knew them differently. Right. Like I can relate to Tanya's story, let's say, or Imani as a parent, as a black woman seen in a particular way, whatever. But then reading like Prentice Hemphill's story, I don't know what it is to be black mm-hmm. and queer. I don't know what it is to be black and trans or black. Kia Brown writes in here about being black and disabled. I don't know what it's like to be black in the academy, right? So it's just like these these nuances of blackness that I even learned more about on, in both ways. I learned I it solidified what I knew about the kind of interconnectedness of blackness and black people. But it also gave me more information um, about who we are and just just how beautifully human we are and and still all struggling under these same systems of oppression, but figuring out how to survive and be resilient in different ways. It was just it's just wonderful. As the stories were coming in, I was like, man, we so we just so dope. I love <laughs> us. You know? Like, what was your crying story or, did, or, or was there one that then as they came in and you just oh, had to like stop man. and just sit and be like, I can't do nothing else. For like another hour. Like I just need to process. A few Tanya's did mm-hmm. me in. Kaya's did me in. Mark's did me in because we're friends. And I knew he was, it was, he wrote that essay. And, and I think, I don't think he would mind me saying this. And people knew that he, he talked a lot this summer about his struggles, but he wrote that essay in the middle of struggling. Um, He had COVID. His store had gotten broken into. He had some personal issues. And, and then here I come like, can you give a little more? <laughs> you know? And and he did. And so seeing how much he put himself of himself um in that really just as a friend really touched me. You know, Austin Shannon Brown talking about her son and thinking about her son and her husband safety every time they leave the house, like all of that resonated with me. The, they they really there was there was some ones that really got me like, ooh. I'm going to have to take this in pieces. <laughs> like, I realize this is a this is a book that I'm going to have to, like, you know, it's going to take me a while. Like, usually I can zoom through something very quickly, especially when the writing is, is as good as this is. But I was like, it's emotionally, it's yeah, a lot. Pace yourself. I'm going to tell you what floored me. And I'm this is, this is a little bit of a humble brag, but I'm not really saying it for that reason. But um, before we did the Gail King show, um, she, did, she called for, like, a pre-call, mm-hmm. you know, like a prep call. And... She said to me, I just got off the plane from LA, five hour flight. I read this book from cover to cover. I couldn't put it down. Mm-hmm. And then I was in tears. Yeah. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. Don't. <laughs> just, yeah. She was one of the first kind of reviews. I, you know, that was like the day before the book um, went pub, you know, before it was released. So I think that I try to tell black people, not necessarily a trigger warning, but to pace yourself because sometimes it's a it's a lot. You know, it's a lot for us to even consume, even though we even for stuff we know, you know it kind of intellectually, but to see it in writing reflected back to you can be like, ooh, 
I just had an experience that I talked about on the last episode of the podcast. Like I was at the post office and a black postal worker behind the glass, thank God. And mm-hmm. this white guy didn't have his ID. And the postal worker was like, well, there's nothing I can do. I can't you know, turn this thing over to you because you need like photo ID. And the white guy became increasingly mad. And he was like, why am I arguing with a stupid nigga? <gasps> yeah, th- that was exactly like, exactly. <clears throat> And, you know, sometimes I think, like, even though, like, L.A. is is actually pretty racist. I mean, they riot here a lot for a reason. Um, (laughs) Like, just to keep them 100. But, like, it's like I was just in the post office. Mm -hmm. I'm just standing there waiting in line. And then, like, an N-bomb dropped from from nowhere. And I was thinking about, but sometimes when you try to be just vulnerable and just be and just, like, mind your business and go about your day, Mm -hmm. you let your guard down and things like that happen. Right. And it makes it harder to be vulnerable in other situations. You're like, oh God, I forgot to put my guard on. I forgot yeah. to put my armor on. Yeah. It's annoying and it's frustrating and it's maddening and it's sad. And it's all of these feelings that we don't get to express. You know what I didn't see last summer enough of? I saw it amongst black folks who, t- cause this is what we, you know, we all, we got, we always take care of each other. Outside of white people being like, let me send you a $5 Starbucks gift card and you know that kind of stuff. Um, and calling randomly to check on you, even though you've never checked on me before, was like, Black folks, how are you? Are you okay? That video alone of George Floyd, I didn't, I, to this day, I have not watched the whole thing. I'm not going to sit there for nine minutes and watch this man's life be snuffed out. I haven't but, watched it. Yeah, I can't, right? But like, George Floyd hit in a huge way, but it's not the first or the 30th, or the 100th, right? And so nobody is like, let's just take a collective pause. Stop asking Black people to do stuff. Stop asking us so many questions. And somebody, please check on us. Are you okay? What do you need? I know this is traumatic for you. The point I'm trying to make is, the reason why this book had to be about Black humanity, and I say this in the beginning of the book, is that anti-racist work is great. But what ends up happening is what ends up ha- what, what I saw play out last summer is that white people and non-black people feel guilty and they rush out and they buy books and they listen to podcasts and they follow the right people on social media and they check off all the different boxes. Okay, whew, well, I'm anti-racist. I got my Black Lives Matter sign. I got my AAPI, stop AAPI hate sign. I got, I've read all the anti-racist books. I follow all the, the you know anti-racist influences on social media. I'm good but you've never taken a minute to engage with black humanity, right? You've never taken a minute to really understand who we are as people. And I just don't think that your anti-racist work can be valid if you haven't engaged with black humanity. Can we talk a bit about being more vulnerable? Cause that's what this, the, the, the getting rid of shame and being mm-hmm. more vulnerable, which is, you know, the purpose um, of this book. How do we get to a point as individuals, mm-hmm. um, where we can be more vulnerable. So how do we like get rid of the armor without and, and tackle that fear of really like being hurt or being disappointed? It's so difficult. I don't, I don't know that I have a foolproof answer, but I do think that we have to be more honest about the things that do hurt. We have to be more honest about the, the, this is why Brene and I had this conversation initially. So for instance, she talks about in um, I think Gifts of Imperfection, one of her books, about being um, in a department store with her daughter. Mm. And her daughter's like acting really silly and, and going up the escalator and, you know, just busting out. A song comes on and she just busts out and starts dancing in front of the, all these people. And she's so ashamed. And she's trying to deal with the shame that she feels for her daughter acting up in the store versus just being vulnerable and allowing herself to experience this joy that her daughter's experiencing. It's a beautiful story. But when you think about what would happen if my daughter was on an escalator, you know, dancing and being free spirited in the soup in the, you know, uh, mall or what have you in the department store, how security can be called, how a white person can find themselves being offended and decide to insert themselves in my life. So me being vulnerable and Brene, for instance, being vulnerable means two different things. Yeah. So, but the, but the reality is we still need vulnerability. 
as individual human beings, we still need vulnerability because it's the, as she says in her work, it's the birthplace of connection and innovation and love and relationship. Those things don't work well if we don't have access to vulnerability. And so this is the, this is the like sweet spot, if you will, or the rub of why we need to tell these stories because we need examples of what that vulnerability can look like inside of a white supremacist patriarchal structure, right? What what does that mean when shame is used as a tool in white supremacy? Um, and I think the answer is really just, we have to keep talking about it amongst ourselves. We have to keep talking about it publicly. We have to name it and call it out when we see it and say, this is not, this shame is not mine. All of the like respectability stuff that we talk about now that is about, that's about shame. I'm ashamed to be, nobody's going to say, very few people will say I'm ashamed to be black, right? But they will then live lives that try to separate them as much as they can from blackness. But that's really about survival. You know, even the folks we call Uncle Toms and all the rest of that, they are, yes, they've been brainwashed and they've been whatever. But at the end of the day, the nugget there is that it's about survival in a country that says, to be right is to be white. To live a full life means that you have to be white. So I want to get as close to whiteness as possible in hopes that I can live a full life. I was also thinking about, um, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Kiesi. Kiesi, yeah. Kiesi. Um, in his essay, he talks about how not wanting to be treated like a nigger Mm. is what white folks call crazy. Mm. <laughs> and that just, it just, it, it hit me so hard. And I think that's the story of, of a lot of Black people. I think it's a very much the story of a lot of Black people. And I think it's very much the story of Black women in a different kind of way, right? Because I think that we can't be vulnerable and we can't find... I don't want to say shame resilience because I think we do excellent. I think we have to be shame resilient in some ways, but black women's mm-hmm. worth in this country is directly tied to yeah. uh, our worth is directly tied to our work. Right. It's directly tied to who we can, what we can do, how we show up, how often we show up, how hard we work. Sort and of. then we're deemed worthy. And sort of. to just, right. Sort of. Right. A little modicum of it, right? And to just exist and live, like, I just want to be myself. I just want to live in this body with this voice and these ideas and these thoughts. That's not, there's no, there's very few places to do that authentically. And it is affecting us. It's affecting, my my essay is about health, but it's affecting us um, in really, really serious ways. I was thinking something similar to that there's a very popular male relationship guru out of Atlanta. And he talks about the the high value or low value worth of people. Oh, that guy. That, I'm trying that, not to I, name him. That, uh-huh. um, I, yeah. I don't want to name him either, but he sits like behind a desk and the people call a desk in, in the and... dark. Yes. That's him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know his name, so I can't name him, but I've seen some of those clips. I think about the constant, the, the constant uh, replay, for lack of a better word, of his rhetoric and how he's like putting these value, put, puts this value on like what makes a woman high worth or what makes a woman, woman low worth. And, um, and I think about how hearing that constantly about what your worth is and what your worth is reduced to, like how that affects you over time. Yeah, that, that's like a microcosm of what we have been dealing with in and out of our community. Yeah. We deal with it inside the community and we deal with it in, in outside in mainstream media and all these different ways that we are. We get these subtle and very direct messages that you are not worthy unless. Yeah. And and definitely, as you, to your point, in the community, we, we get these similar messages. I talk about for the very first time in this book, my health issues. And I've been dealing with health issues for the last, well, for a couple of years, but the last year they got really, really serious. And um, last summer I had a stroke. I didn't know that. Nobody knows it. <laughs> I mean, even if your friend like text with you, I didn't know that. No, I know, I know. Even some of my closest friends don't know. Case in point. Um, and part of that is about the shame. It was like you have. I have been going for four years. 
going. And I mean, my ca- I mean, even in the pandemic, though I wasn't on planes four and five days a week, I was on Zooms all day and like just all this other stuff. And last summer, I um, was in my house and had a long day and was feeling that I, I keep trying to describe this feeling well because I want other people to to get it. I felt very fatigued, like incredibly fatigued to the point where I said to my staff, I'm going to go take a nap, which I never do. I joke about doing it. I threaten to do it. I never take a nap. And I went and I laid down and maybe an hour after laying down, I woke up and my and felt paralyzed almost like my my right side couldn't move. I could almost not move my left side, but I could move it enough to move my hands. And luckily my fiance at the time and my daughter were in the house. So I called out to my daughter because I could hear that they were closer to me. And I was trying to like, but before that happened, I laid in that bed. I don't know how long, Demetria, trying to figure out what the ramifications would be of me making this into a big deal. What? Yeah. I literally laid in the bed thinking, okay, this might just be like your iron is low. Like I'm talking to myself, like don't, don't create a whole thing where you got to go to the hospital and all the rest of that. Like just calm down. I was trying to calm myself down. Like, you know, maybe this is an anxiety attack. Maybe this is, I don't want, I just started thinking about all the different like outcomes of me responding outwardly the way I felt inwardly, which is like, I, could I be dying right now? It was just the scariest moment of my life in terms of you know medical. And finally, when I couldn't rationalize anymore, my brain started like going to mush, it felt like, and I was just called out to Kaya. And I didn't notice, but I was talking... In my head, I thought I was saying things right, but I was saying them wrong to her. So Kaya couldn't figure out what I was saying. It was trying to understand. It was just, it was just very, 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 very scary. Long story short, though, when I got to the hospital and they ran, I mean, I was there for two day and a half, and they ran all of these tests and they said I had something called a TIA, which is um, it's like a mild stroke. Um and it was, you know, very serious, blah, blah, blah. And they did the neurological scan and I had to follow with a neurologist. And I got this black woman neurologist mm. who is the head of the stroke center at Mount Sinai in New York. I'm telling you something. I know this is a long story, but I just want to, this part is not in the book. I mean, it is, but I'm not, not these details. Her name is Dr. Brockington. And she's one of those just no nonsense, you know, straightforward Black women, and she she listened to the story. She looked at my test results. You know, she got all my scans, and she said, "Well, she said, what do you do?'" And I I tried to explain it to her because I tried to be like, "Well, I'm the founder of a movement, (laughs) the time person of the year, you know, yeah, like I'm not going into all of that." So I was just like, "I'm, you know, I'm an activist and organizer. I write. I'm just really, really busy. Public figure, I think I said." And she's like, oh, okay. That didn't matter. She was just trying to gauge like how busy I am. And she said, well, I'll tell you this, Tarana. Unless you make a drastic change in your life, you will die. And it makes me emotional, right? Even now. Yeah. She. I'm so glad though. She was so straight up and down like, okay, whatever you're doing in the world, that's cute. I'm telling you. What's, what the situation is. She also um, was so thorough in my testing that she discovered that I had a, a neurological condition. It's just, they call it complex migraines, essentially. And I, I found out that black, many Black women have this. In fact, my assistant had it. Oh how crazy gosh. is that? But, but I, I'm telling that story to talk about how really there's that one piece about like, I thought so much about how weak it made me feel and how out of control it made me feel. And if I'm being quite honest, what people were going to say, what they 
you know, there's a particular way we have to stay busy and visible and active or, or not, but, but that's, it feels like that. And I was so caught up in that. And I, this, I'm just going to share this part I wrote in the book because the, the, my essay is a letter to my future self. And I just am making a commitment to my future self mm. to stay alive. Um, but this part I think is relevant to us. It says, <clears throat> I know you probably still call yourself a freedom fighter, but I wonder if you have mapped out a path to your own liberation. Black excellence, strong Black woman, thank a Black woman, Black girl magic, they are all about our labor, not Mm. our liberation. Mm. And that's what I'm thinking about, right? They They will thank us and, 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 celebrate us and oh you showed up to vote and black women saved the democracy but in the trenches in the in our darkest times that we have to think about how much we are actually worth yeah you know what would i be worth to the world if i am not able to work at the level that i've been working if i'm not able to contribute and put out what people expect from me it's it's been a trip first and foremost are you okay? I am. I have, you know, this this doctor has gotten my, she got my act together. <laughs> and as you know, I, I moved out of the city. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a big, big, big deal for me to get somewhere where I can have some, some like peace. Yeah. Uh, that's been helpful. I, you know, I try to take my medicine regularly and do my little exercises. And, and, and honestly, it's about stress and anxiety. All the girl, you'll you'll see this girl. in essay too. <laughs> the stress and anxiety, we we under we downplay it and we we you know we say all oh, there's all the little memes about resting and da 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 da. That shit is real, 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 real. Girl, I I'm go gonna ahead. tell you. Something. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm just talking. I have you here to, to so we can talk to you. I can tell my stories anytime. Well, I'm just sharing that the reason what the, the thing that sparked me to write this essay because I wasn't gonna write about this when I wrote it. Brene was like, uh. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> That's how you know. Like you shared a lot. Uh, like, yeah, she was like, because she didn't know. You know, she was like, "Uh, wow, okay." But I went to the dentist. Imagine having your dentist come back and say, "Are you stressed? Are you dealing with a lot of stress?" And I was like, "I mean, yes, but how would you like? What is this show you? My I teeth, just, you know? my teeth clean." Yeah, and he said. I can tell because you're grinding your teeth down. Mm. You've grind. You, I, I, I was grinding my teeth so much that I grinded the enamel <gasps> off the back of my teeth. Oh my gosh! Isn't that crazy? And I was like, "All right, yeah, let's. It's time to let's let's pull up." <laughs> you know what? It's not crazy because I, I guarantee you that half the people listening to this are like, "Oh, is that what that is?" Mm-hmm. And, and the story mm-hmm. that I was going to tell you is, um, I got shingles at. 38 and 37 or 38 and like I got these blisters on my hands I've got this shooting pain up my arm it's like level nine pain and these blisters on my arms and I was or not my arms on my fingers and I had a cover story due for essence and I was so ashamed at whatever this pain was that that I didn't tell my editor, who's one of my friends, like I'm close to her the same way mm. I am to you, Corey Murray. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to call Cur- oh. Corey and tell her that I couldn't turn in the cover story at that by deadline because I have some unknown pain shooting up my fingers. Because you're, as a journalist, as a black woman, like you just get shit done. It's yeah. just what you do. And it's a cover story. I got some cotton balls and some band-aids. Oh. And I sat there and write, wrapped them around my fingers and I sat there and typed an entire cover story, 2,500 words, with my mostly my left hand and my ring finger and my pinky. I mean, I'm being extra emotional. I think I'm just emotional lately, but it's just shit that makes me want to cry. Yeah. Like these stories, this is what I'm talking about, Black women. It's because we don't have spaces that, that, that value us and where we feel like we can say... At a job, I mean that's different. We know Corey, and she's cool, and 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 she would have understood. She would have right? told me we, to take my ass to emergency. Exactly, go to a hospital. You won't sit, don't sit and suffer through that. But it's really what's been we've been socialized yeah. this way. I have to produce. I have to all of this strong black woman and 
you know, we like workhorses and is and it is it is tied very much to white supremacy. It is tied to patriarchy. And it is time that we are we have deeper conversations. It's more than just we got to take naps. It's more than just we need to go on more vacations and girl trips. We have to really try to unpack and dismantle some of this stuff and figure out new ways to literally exist. I loved um, and Tanya Denise Fields in her essay. She she was like, you know, she hit rock bottom and just had like a, a come to Jesus moment and was like, I can't keep letting like shame and and what's essentially shame dictate my life. But she was really, really good at describing like the messy, dirty, hard, unrelenting mm-hmm. work of dealing with your shit so that you can be a better person. Doing your self-work, it's not just taking a nap and it's not just moving to the suburbs. It's not buying more stuff right. or going on vacation. It's it's ugly, messy, dirty. It takes a long time. There's ups and downs. It's what I call the ugly underbelly. And that it's a process because I think it's important that we are, you know, two black women who I think some might look at and be like, oh, you know, one of them is the, you know, time person of the year. <laughs> um, the other one's like a friend in my head and, and she's talked about the ups and downs of her life. And, you know, it's been a while and she's been doing herself work. So maybe it's all figured out. And no, 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 no. I try to, I, you know, clearly I talk to a lot of survivors and I'm I'm always trying to be as transparent as possible. I am we and will continue to be a work in progress. I learn new things about myself, about my capacity, about my my needs all the time. And I'm always re like you said, this it's hard and it's messy. I call it the ugly underbelly of healing. Healing is not just reserved for, you know, people who've experienced sexual violence or gun violence or some particular like direct violence. We live, we experience what you experience in the post office is a type of violence. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that, there's a, there's, we experience these like, it's like what do they call it, death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. We experience that every day. And so we should be in healing spaces and, and, and take on healing practices if it's nothing more than just undoing the trauma of existing in a, in a incredibly racist country. Yeah. And I think it was really important to me that you named it as trauma, because I think some mm-hmm. things like are just so fucked up and have been so fucked up for so long. It's just yeah. life. It's just life. It, exactly. It's just like, oh, there's, there's something different than this. Like, it, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be just like this. Yeah, it yeah. can be. Listen, when you describe the story in the post office, that's that's another one of those kind of stories where you would come home, you tell your friend or you tell your man, like, can you believe this happened in the post office? And you kind of just keep moving. Yeah. And we become desensitized and we kind of learn to push aside whatever that feeling is that, that uh, even our feelings being hurt, right? It feels like you're being self, your feelings is hurt because somebody said, nigga, I mean, come on, you heard that a million times. So, so my feelings are my feelings. And my they're feelings hurt. are my feelings. And we don't get a place to do that and be that like, and, and, and the other reason why shame resilience is a part of this title is that in spite of that, we still find ways to be incredibly resilient. We we are, you know, a lesson, a study in, in resilience, particularly in America. And I wanted to to celebrate that too. Like the stories are not all just like, oh, woe is me, gloom and doom. People are talking about, like we said, in Tanya's story, she comes to a place where she's like, I have to reckon with this and 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 this is how I do that. Or Austin's um Channing Brown talking about foreboding joy. Like the other part to this is that we also need spaces to recognize. Sometimes you, you have to count it all joy. Everything you do to survive, every little piece that you do matters. And we need to to articulate that too and celebrate that too and, and lift each other up for the ways that we survive and thrive on a regular basis. I love that. Thank you, babes. Thank you. I want to talk about, um, (laughs) because we're just talking. Um, Exactly. No, I wanted to talk about like your your CBS project. And and I wanted to talk about your your upcoming book with that beautiful Bisa Butler cover. Yeah, let's talk a little bit. I got, I have about 10 minutes. Okay. We can fit that in there. What's with CBS? CBS was interesting. That was um, not on the vision board. Sometimes God is like, you forgot something. Um, I have a friend, well, a lot of us, you know Jenny, Jenny Lament? No. 
Jenny Lumet is the daughter of Sydney Lumet, the director, the famed director, and the granddaughter of Lena Horn. Mm, okay. And she's just an all around amazing person. Um, other people might remember that she was one, she wrote this gorgeous essay about being a survivor of um, Russell Simmons. Oh, yes. I know mm-hmm. she is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, she's, she, she, she's most famous and most known for her, her movie, uh, Rachel Getting Married. She's a TV writer and, you know, she's a writer and um, in the industry and has been incredibly generous over the years, opening her home to do writing workshops for black women and like, not just writing workshops, but like, this is how you get in the business. You have to write this way. And if you want it to be picked up by these people, she called me one day, like, what you up to? <laughs> I'm like, oh, just about 50 million things, you know? And she's like, listen, I'm at, I'm over here at CBS. Um, things have changed a lot. Cause of course, you know, we had less moon vests. We had, there's been a lot of controversy at CBS yeah. and I was like, I mean, that's cool. That's I hope things are working out for you. And she's like, the new head of CBS, uh, George Cheeks, is a black man, black queer man, who is very, 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 this is the person who took Les Moonves' place. And so she's like, I just want you to talk to him. Just kind of hear him out, whatever. And so we a series of conversations happened. I, I have to admit, I was definitely like, is this one of those pick your brain things where they're just going to keep calling you up and you have these like, Zooms with all of these executives on them, and nobody was like, Toronto, do you want to deal? It was just like, What do you want to see? And what's your, you know, this kind of stuff. What did the trick was George himself was like, I I think you have a place here in the CBS family. I think what I'm trying to do is revolutionize, you know, this station, this, this, this network, this company. And I think that you can help us do that. And I was like, Wow. Okay, maybe. <laughs> so so CBS called you and was like, we think you should join us and here's a production deal. Yeah. And it was what? and it was so I had a deal with um a first look deal with A and E Studios for some I've had a, a few years. And so I knew a little you know, I know a little bit about the business and that kind of stuff. Um there was no talk, I promise you there was no talk of a deal to the very end. It was like, hey, let's get on a call with the this person and that person. And can you, you know, you're free. It was not like we were courting or working towards a thing until he was like, um, this is what's possible. Are you interested? It's like, yes, uh, yes, 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 I am. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I am. And you know, um, Mervin, my partner, we had been, we've been, he's been like, right. My right hand man since the beginning of like me too going viral. He's, um, does like crisis communications and all this other stuff. Plus he's a producer. And so I pulled him into conversations like, Hey, this seems like it's more than <laughs> trying to do more than pick my brain. Um, And then we got into, you know, the thick of the conversations and whatnot. And I was like, this is great. This, this feels good. It feels like we can do some things here. And I want to be a part of, I really feel like you, it's one thing to want to shift the narrative and I can like crisscross the country making speeches and do cover stories in magazines, but it's not the same as like 20 years of Law and Order SVU. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you want to tell a different story, sometimes you got to write that story. So I, that's where I, that's where I entered from. I was like, we got a chance. And, you know, there's also people like I have, the, you know, our sort of our universe, the ecosystem around me, this is not just about like, personal projects I want to bring forward or Merv wants to bring forward. I know people with such great, great, great imaginations and stories and talent who will not, who's going to open the door for them, right? Like who's, who's going to, you know, me from before when we was in our little writing group and we just trying to get put on and trying to get articles published and things like that without somebody saying, let me give you a leg up. Let me invite you in. Let me, I've, I feel like that's been a big part of my whole career. Wherever I get an opportunity, it's been, it, I've created opportunities, you know, carved out space for us to get more of us in it. And so this was like, oh, we about to do this big time. <laughs> what kind of stories do you want to tell? 
Black stories? First and foremost. <laughs> you like black stories. Black stories. <laughs> but, but bigger than that, I mean, some of the stories won't just be obviously just based centered around black people, but I want to tell robust stories. Like similar to this book, I think that we have seen all the formulas every which way they can configure them. But then we know our lives. So like, why isn't there a television show that reflects my life today? Not not flashing back or flashing forward, right? Why can't you be over 40 and black and not fine <laughs> on, cause, you know, because all of these black women that we love are in their 40s, some of them in their 50s, and they are, they just look like they're 22 or 32. I just want somebody that's got, that's like a size 14. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so there's that, but I also want to, you know, my work obviously is really, um, also focused on gender-based violence and sexual violence. And I think that when I look at examples of like Michaela Cole with I May Destroy You. Yes. Oh, that was amazing. Just, oh my gosh. It's just, and it's such, it's, it's just a lesson. Like people need to watch that and learn. And I think stories like that contribute to the greater understanding of the, of what it means to be a survivor and, is, and if you can understand that more, then, then we create more empathy for survivors when they come forward. We create more spaces for them to tell their stories. So, you know, I'd have a couple of things. We have a a, um, a slate that we were already kind of like, we ready to go. We got ideas. We got ideas. Um, yeah, like that's there's no shortage of ideas. Um, and I think other people don't know that side of me, that I was already a writer and I was, you know, involved in artist and and I did arts and culture work for a long time so it's like well, why are you why are you doing this I'm like well like that was the original plan yeah, to be quite honest right like this is what I, I and you know I'm telling you the one the one lesson I keep getting over and over again since me too went viral and all of this happened is that we absolutely don't dream big enough yeah right right I had myself in a box limited and it, it felt like it was big but it wasn't like CBS overall deal big, right? <laughs> it's like that's a hell of a dream. That's exactly. But like, why not? You know, your your goal overall. Like, as long as I've known you, you wanted to write, write. You wanted to write a book, and that's also on the horizon. I just saw that beautiful Bisa Butler cover the other day. Like, I gasped. I was like, I want a poster for my wall. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you, and you you definitely know this better than most that. Of all the things that I've had the good fortune of experiencing and being, you know, um, have, that have opened up for me over the last four years, the one thing that I actually wanted that was like on my my list of, you know, whatever was to write, was to be an author, was to tell stories and tell my story. And, and also as Me Too emerged and all of this kind of hoopla around it emerged, I have been very protective of my story. I just didn't want it to be told by anybody. Like people think they know. And so I see like this, like these crazy Wikipedia pages, with all of this misinformation. I wanted to control my own story as an example for survivors of like, you, your story is your gift and you get to tell it how and when you want to. You know what? Today is what? Cinco de Mayo. It is two years ago yesterday, May 4th, 2019 is when I got the... Oprah's interested in doing a book, mm-hmm. doing your book. I remember. Mm-hmm. Email. And it was like, so when you say Oprah, do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, is there another Oprah that I'm unfamiliar with? Right. Is I just there... want to get all the facts before I respond and react to this because, you know, I'd had some some drama before I had a book deal and I had to walk away from it because it was so entangled with kind of mess. And I felt like, dag. That's the one thing I want, and I'm and I probably won't even get it right. And then, um, but I'm so glad that I walked away from that first situation because it created the space for this one, which was bigger and better. And you know, um, so yeah, this is the hardest thing I've ever done writing this memoir. I literally turned in my copy edits yesterday. Ah. Yeah, so it's we're coming around the mountain. It's going to be out in September. September. Oh, wait, it's. This yes, because the cover is out. That means it's coming this yeah. soon. Oh my gosh. It's coming soon. Yeah, you can already pre-order it. Okay. It'll it'll be out this fall, right around my birthday in September. And it's called Unbound. Um, because it really is my like it's I don't want to give away too much, but you know, I could have written about the last four years 
easily, but it, it would have been just a story like, oh, I went to the Golden Globes and then I met so-and-so and then we, you know, like Kavanaugh happened or whatever. I haven't had enough time, I think, to deeply reflect on the last four years. Mm-hmm. So this book is really about the first 47 years <laughs> or 44 years. Um, and really what the, the, the events in my life that led to the need for and the creation of the movement. And man, it's been, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's like excavation. It's really hard, but I'm, I'm glad I did it and I feel good about it. I cannot wait to read it. Like I know some of the stories because you think, you know, your friends and then you start reading their work and you'd be like, wait, girl, what? <laughs> like, when did this happen? Cause I was around for this period and you never right. said, who is this? Yeah. Right. Um, I cannot wait to read it. Hopefully we can have you back on the show. Cause I'm sure I'll have oh, yeah. a whole bunch more questions. We want to talk about the book. And I've been talking about doing this book club forever and a day for, uh, for Ratchet. Oh, you need to do that. You I know. know I'm I know. Back. As I was reading I, your book, I was like, mm-hmm. I, this should have been like my first book club pick. I mean, it should be like the hundredth, but I should have done this a long time ago. But <laughs> I really want black women to read this book. And I think it's important that, um, that we read it and that we talk about it, especially mm-hmm. in safe spaces. And I also want to just add this, like it, for everything that's shared in this book, some of it is very raw. Some of it is very gritty. Some of the things you described are just like, you know, stories that may sound extreme. But as someone who has been publicly vulnerable for like the last like 10, 11, 12 years, there's nothing that I've ever shared that no matter how crazy it is, that there hasn't been like, I don't know, 100 people in my inbox of some form or fashion to be like, oh, girl, me too. Yep. I thought I was the only one that happened to you. Oh my goodness. But I think that's also part of of the function of shame is that you think that this only is happening to me and other people can't relate. They can't identify. And then you start talking like you get just just fed up enough with shame to just be like, well, this is what it is. And fuck it. And then people be like, girl, me too. (laughs) Listen, and that's the thing about shame. I'm glad you said that. That's a great point to, to make about this book. Shame cannot um, withstand community. No, like once you speak it out loud and you find that's why empathy is the thing that takes that 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 takes shame away. When you find two people that can empathize with each other and they get to speak their stories out loud, shame has no way to live. So I think it's important that, that everyone listening to this podcast should definitely pick up this book. They should definitely find safe spaces to talk about this book. If I need to like get my ass in motion and start a book club sooner than later, <laughs> so that it, you know, people be like, well, girl, you wouldn't want with the platform and the community. So talk about it. Um, okay. And I hope we can do that. But I'm so proud of you just as a oh, friend. You, like please. I've been on this journey with you for like a decade and you've been amazing, like pre-fame and all of that. But just the way that you, what's the word, gracefully handled being the the face of a international, <laughs> <laughs> not even national, an international movement. You're just, you're grace personified and I love what you're doing and I'd love to support you in any way that I can. Thank you. And you've definitely done that. I just, you know, people don't realize the, that it makes a difference. I think about us like meeting up in DC for dinner. Remember that time mm-hmm. when you, you was going through, I didn't know what you had been going through and you started telling me and I was like, you know, this is a human to human connection that we have to just make sure we keep. We have to check on our folks and check in with our folks. And and you do that. You do that really, you know, you make a point of doing that. And I appreciate it. So so next time you're in L.A., which I want you to move out here, but, you know, I won't be selfish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how my husband going to feel about that. <laughs> Bring him, too. I'm not telling you to leave him. Bring him, too. <laughs> oh, look. You see, I separate the two, right? <laughs> I can't let can't my husband going to feel. Bring him, too. I, I believe in black love. Bring him with you. Yo, L.A. is my little... I'm, he's always like, oh, you're going, you're going to take one of your little getaways. Because <laughs> he does... He used to travel with me to do security for me. And so, but when I go to LA, it's usually work and business stuff. I'm like, I don't need no security. I'm, you know, and so I, I take those trips alone. He's like, mm-hmm, you're going out to LA again. Yeah. I'm you're fine. I, I'm, I'm downtown. You'll be fine. There's enough of us exactly. here. You're fine. Cut it out. But we'll have dinner and a cocktail since LA is open again. Uh, oh, that's right. It is LA open. is open. Okay. We're officially open. Yes. So come West, visit. I'm coming West. <laughs> Thank you. Can't wait to see you. All right. All right. All right. Thank you for this. Thank you. I greatly appreciate you. She was worth turning the show over to, right? I love her. So that is this week's episode of Ratchet and Respectable. 
If you haven't picked up your Don't Waste Your Pretty merch on DemetriaLLucas.com, please do. Please do. It is there. It is waiting for you. There are many sizes. I still ain't put the V's on the site. Look, I also don't have a broom right now. I lost my broom in the move and like my place is dusty. It's dusty. We're working through some things over here. Okay. Okay. So next week, maybe this weekend, I'll have some downtime to get things done. Plus my cousin's in town. I've been running around with my my cousin. She's a a young woman in her (laughs) mid-30s. So yes, that is everything. And we will talk again on Tuesday. Talk soon. Bye. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.